Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 309. Uh, This is a mini episode. It's an interview with uh, two of my favorite uh, filmmakers, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. And they've got a uh, a new film coming out on on HBO, uh, the day after Christmas. And uh, this is not a commercial endorsement. Um, this is not a paid thing. I just uh, really want people to see this film. And uh, I also wanted to ask uh, Randy and Fenton about their careers and a little bit about their their personal lives. And uh, I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. I'm here with Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado, who are producers uh, who I mostly know for their work in uh, documentaries. I'm a big fan. Um, They have a new documentary out now on HBO that that we're going to talk about, but I'd also like to talk about um, your career, um, why you're drawn to... uh, voices of people who uh, as as you guys have said it in an interview live out li- loud and uh, have been marginalized by society um but most importantly there is a documentary coming on uh December 26th to HBO called uh, Every Brilliant Thing starring Johnny Donahoe Donahoe am I pronouncing it correctly Yeah Donahoe Donahue is like Donahue Okay Donahue okay. Donahue Donahoe Donatello. <laughs> it is a um, a filmed performance of the stage play he's been doing uh, off Broadway for a while, and it is about depression, suicide, um, 
genetics, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. um, and finding things to live for, things to get us through those times, embracing, this is my take on it, um, what what is there to look forward to in, in, in the world? Um, and he writes these things down, which is the, the what the title is based on. He, he starts a list of things he thinks are brilliant. And um, I was in tears 10 minutes into it when oh. he was doing the thing about, and I don't cry. <laughs> I don't cry very much. Um, just when he was talking about his dog. It's one of oh. the most moving documentaries I've I've ever seen, and it's so in the wheelhouse for my listeners um, that uh, I was like, we have to do a, a mini episode and get these guys in here, even if so, I can just <laughs> meet them because I'm I'm such a fan. Um, t- tell tell the listener uh, more about every brilliant thing. Well, you know, th- thanks so much. It's really nice to be here, and it's funny as you were introducing it. We often talk about this film as based on a play about depression and suicide, and yet really. I think the film and the play is ultimately very life affirming mm-hmm. and uh in in trying to create the poster HBO came up with a, I feel a great line um which is a list for life and that 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 uh this list for life that this kid starts writing when he's a kid to help his mother with her depression is something that I sort of feel I could do with one myself. You know, this idea that it's about the little things in life that make... It is the little things in life that make life living, the ordinary things, not necessarily the big uh, milestones, but these, you know... Um, and so the, the, the even though, yes, it's about depression and suicide, it's really also about joy and wonder and exuberance, uh, actually. And, and so ironically, even though it's about such a dark subject, mm-hmm. the film is kind of plays very funny. Um, oh, definitely. He is. He has a great sense of humor and uh, very dry, very dark. And that's um, that that brings comfort to um, not only to myself, but to people like our listeners who go through very, very dark times and need to know that they're not alone, need Mm. to be reminded that there is good in the world, that there is hope. You may not feel it at this moment, but, you know, think about that, the the smell of the cottage uh, that you went to as a kid and when bacon was cooking in the morning, you know, those little life Mm. rafts when you're feeling uh, like you are never going to find an island. Um, Give me a couple of uh, one of the things we do on the show is we do a list of fears and loves, and sometimes uh-huh. we just improvise them. But right. um, give me two each of hmm. of kind of sublime things that that you love. Hmm. Um, drag queens. I love drag queens. And you guys produce uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> yeah. You've, you've known RuPaul since you were students. Yeah. Yeah. Since uh, certainly since my first year, couple of years in New York, and Randy and I were, we'd left film school actually when we met Rue for the first time. Yeah, shortly after leaving film school. But you know, it was, it was one of those moments that is just, it's, you see someone and see something, it's just instant, and you just mm-hmm. recognize in that moment that there's someone who 
will change your life or who you identify as really significant. And I think for both of us, it was immediate recognition of this sort of, oh, you know, we've said before, oh, he was always a star and it was about waiting for the rest of the world to catch up. But I think it was, I think in truth, to be more accurate about it, I think we just recognized this 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 person who was incredibly powerful. And it it wasn't so much the stardom, I think. It, it was this just... I mean, Rue is, a, is an incredibly wise and centered person and mm-hmm. very has inspired certainly me and I think both both of us actually in our work and careers. So he's a figure who lives life out loud and is larger than life, but also very grounded and very, um, very wise uh, person. So it would be fair, fair to say that the, the spirit of people is kind of what... Um, you you find uh, compelling uh, yeah and i think you can sometimes recognize that in someone before you even speak to them mm-hmm. i I, you I, know, I don't know how i couldn't explain it to you but it's just that sort of you can just something happens in a non-linguistic way you just recognize mm-hmm. that you know yeah. the energy force yes. yeah. what is it uh, if you can be a little more detailed about drag queens that that you love um and you guys did not do Paris is burning. Did you? We didn't, but we love Paris is oh my burning. God. It's I, like our Bible. Um, the first time I saw that, I was in. I'm cis, hetero, and uh, I could not. Uh, I, first of all, I didn't understand how have I gone this far in my life and had no idea. You know, a theater right. student, liberal, lived in big cities, and I had no idea there was this whole subculture. Uh, about the drag queens and mm-hmm. and um, the it's, it just it's funny yeah. we it, it, it's funny because we actually you know producing Drag Race we actually make sure every season that the new contestants have seen um, Paris. Paris is burning it's like required it just like Mommy Dearest is required viewing <laughs> as well um, but I think I think you know and uh, there is a connection weirdly <laughs> between. Every brilliant thing and drag queens, not just because drag queens would be on my list of brilliant things, but because, um, you know, drag queens, uh, sort of so many of them, they, they don't take life too seriously. They find the joy in life. They, they embrace the colors. And I, I do think that Johnny and, uh, the playwright, uh, Duncan McMillan, I think that's, part of what you know the inspiration they draw in every brilliant thing it's it's it is about finding hope in Mm. the colors of life Mm. and and you know there is no um for people who are suffering depression there's no sort of there's no there's no one thing that you know can can sort of uh um pull us from the depths of darkness and depression. But it is comforting to be reminded of the colors of life. It's comforting to to kind of experience uh, a connection with other people who, who um, y- you know, sort of not just suffer from depression or but understand the darkness and you, you know what i mean so i think mm-hmm. that i think drag queens are you know shamanistic in that 
in that sense of they 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 know the darkness because they're you know it takes a lot to even be able to live that life but they choose to recognize and embrace the lightness and yeah. the light and so um and i love that they take the very thing that is their hurdle in life and turn it into art mm-hmm. or a picket sign or a or a bullhorn or you know whatever whatever <laughs> mm-hmm. it is that mm-hmm. that that to me i think is is what touched me so much about uh, every brilliant thing is he took um this family hereditary i'm assuming it's hereditary uh, in him who who knows but it mm-hmm. runs in his family and um and even if he didn't suffer from it just having a mother who was depressed and suicidal mm-hmm. um how he took that and said i'm going to find the beauty in life instead of saying i didn't get a childhood uh-huh mm-hmm. and the, the, the other the other thing about this this play is is the way they you know we made the tv adaptation of it and part of our job as directors and documentarians was to sort of find a way to bring it to television without and and kind of honor its authenticity i mean it's it's an extraordinary theatrical experience it's it is the, it's a, the most intimate thing i've ever seen because he does it in the round yeah. and he involves members of the audience yeah and they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's unlike anything that I've that I've seen before. And I was a little skeptical going in because uh-huh. I'm like, oh, a Broadway thing about depression. You know, I didn't. I think if you guys hadn't been attached to it, I don't know if I would have watched it, and I and I would have missed out on a really really great piece of art. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's it's funny you, you said you know what one of the great fears one of my great fears is audience participation <laughs> so it's like you're gonna go and see a play about depression and it's all audience participation i was like no you know <laughs> I, I was like i do not want to go see this and immediately on entering the, the fact it's in the round was also a brilliant idea because you're not it's not that traditional divide between the stage and the audience that you're in the round and johnny is so amazing because he has some ability he makes it look so easy he's it a looks great sort improviser of, right because there has to be improvisation when yeah. you're picking out a different audience member each night right and is able to somehow set that whole room immediately at ease Absolutely. so that feeling of like oh that that terror that terror that fear of audience participation actually quickly gets set aside and and i don't think anyone in that room on the certainly the when we taped it had that fear mm-hmm. that understandably i think many people have of you know now you're going to be singled out and am i going to be good enough in that moment it wasn't like that at all it felt much like a room full of like-minded people sharing something through Johnny uh, and and Duncan through this brilliant play about about something that actually, even though we don't always talk about it, it's something that is universally relatable because you may not yourself suffer from depression, but chances are you know someone who does. Mm -hmm. And so it is a universal mm -hmm. experience. And yet, ironically, not something really... It seems that we go to great lengths to avoid talking yeah. about it, and and I think it's it's uh, 
it's universal and that it's really about a hurdle. It's about something that makes you question the value of going on. You know, mm. could be anxiety, could be trauma, could be, you know, a health issue. Um, I, I almost feel like the, the, uh, the fact that it was depression is just happens to be what this right what this thing is a is about uh-huh. uh, that that's how i felt watching it uh-huh. um and i live with depression i've lived with depression for you know decades but um it yeah it's it's great and and how he managed to make it not feel like a performance right. even though it was a a performance it's um I know. I just uh, well, I, I think it. you could say it is a performance, but I think it's so authentic and so genuinely felt from the stages of writing to the way it's delivered. Mm. It 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 isn't like a it it's real, mm-hmm. you know. It it really is real. It's it, yeah. I mean, we saw many performances. We saw many performances before we filmed, and we actually. Uh, our film is a combination of three performances, mm. each one equally magical. It was not like we we needed to film three performances to get a good one. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, and, and not to give too much away, but but it is audience participation. And some members play key roles. They're the guy like, that played so, his father? Yeah. They you play, must have just been beside yourself in the editing room when you saw that footage. We were, but mm-hmm. I, I got to say, all three performances had three amazing yeah. men play his father. Yeah. I mean, it's strange. No, you be you honest, know. the other two were shit. No, no, no. They, we, could do, we could do a remix. We could... No, they were... They were um, they were almost as good. No, they were yeah. there. I would say, yeah. you, know, you, you know, it was it was a struggle to pick one, I guess is what I'm saying, because it's it's strange. He creates uh, a sense of ease and comfort and people rise to the occasion. Yeah, a sense of safety, I think, yeah. is a safe, yeah. safe space. And, and if this is sounding a little uh, unclear to uh, listeners, uh, what Johnny would do is he would say, you know, this thing happened to me when I was seven years old. I was in the car with my father. Sir, would you mind playing my father? Um, would you uh, pretend you, you're driving me to school and you're concerned that such and such? And so then he would improvise this little thing. And sometimes Johnny would make an adjustment and say, no, you know, maybe you're a little, you're a little mm-hmm. upset with, with me here. And, uh, and it was, um, yeah, it's just a beautiful, and, unique... And they are truly people off the street. You know, even the three performances we did, we didn't advertise. We, you know, we literally, there are people who walked in off the street. And um, um, and and the other, the interesting thing about this, someone plays his father, someone plays the girl he falls in love with. Um, and he... He casts it. He stands in the theater as people are coming in and he just looks and scans the people who are coming in. Mm-hmm. And he decides just by watching people who he's going to pick as his father and who mm-hmm. he's going to pick as his girlfriend. It's, mm-hmm. um, Which, it's, by the way, made it a challenge to shoot because it's in the round. <laughs> and so these characters would be for each different performance sitting in a different place. Mm-hmm. There's no way of knowing where they were going to sit. You know? Right. Um, 
So, uh, and we talked about, well, do we ask them to move and put them in certain seats? But it was like, no, you can't do that because you're then kind of interrupting the authenticity of this moment and you're sort of uh, interfering with it. And, and he was, they were so right about that that we just had to go with it. And um worked out just great. Yeah, we, you know. we all the cameras were hidden. I mean, yeah. we... You see a camera once or twice. Yeah, right? but we but, really... Like, our job was to not be there. Yeah. Like, that it was... You, you did a good job because I, I... You know, I, I'm, sometimes I'm looking for continuity or I uh -huh. want to see where the audience changes or I want to see where the camera is. And uh, I, I really didn't see anything. Um, I would like, if there's anything uh, more that you'd like to talk about every brilliant thing, it, it debuts uh, the day after Christmas on yep. HBO. Um, do you not happen to know what time? I imagine in the evening? Nine o'clock. East Coast? East Coast, yes. Nine, Nine o'clock. Okay. I think. I think. Okay. I'm sure people can find check it. Check your list, local listings. Check, <laughs> check the internet. It's a series of tubes and wires. Um I would love to, you know, doing some research uh, about you guys. Oh, the other documentary uh, I wanted to uh, say that I loved was uh, Maplethorpe. Look at the pictures. Oh, thank you. Um, you two met in the village in the 80s, um, which obviously was the heyday of uh, Robert, Robert right. Maplethorpe. Right. Um, also, really kind of ground zero for AIDS. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. What I don't know what questions to ask you necessarily, but paint a picture for me of what it was like being in the village as this bomb is exploding. And wow, that's a really I mean, Randy and I met at film school, and uh, it was certainly my first few days in New York. I'm from England originally, and um, I think what struck us was, I mean, we were very much in the East Village and didn't really go that much to the West Village. And it was, it wasn't that there was a divide, but there were, they were different worlds and slightly Would you, would different... you meet under the viaduct like West Side Story? <laughs> <laughs> right. They were just slightly it was... different generations, I suppose, right? You know, yeah. West Village was like... The big gay area and East Village wasn't any less gay necessarily, but it was more sort of artists. It was this sort of we were conscious of this artistic explosion. Like, you know, uh, I remember meeting Martin Burgoyne, who was the designer who designed Madonna's record cover. He was always at the pyramid in those ripped jeans. Mm -hmm. And there was John <laughs> Sachs and Ethel Eichelberger and in due course, Lady Bunny and RuPaul, they're all these amazing performers. And it was just this incredible, um, like creative. I mean, I think at the time you didn't necessarily see it that way. You look back on it through slightly rose tinted glasses, you know, but it was an incredible creative explosion of uh, uh, painters not just performers painters as well right um, yeah totally i mean there were canon the, rains the poet with the snake yeah there there were um, all the 8bc and the limbo lounge there were all these art spaces and so yeah. the east village was filled with it was gender fluid it yeah. was gender 
fa. I don't know if we can say that. Yeah, you can say it, it was gender okay. Yeah, gender queer, and and it was so. So it was this time where anything was possible, and but uh, the West Village. It was also the time that that at it was the beginning of the AIDS crisis, and it right. started out as this thing that that. No, but it was like a mystery. Yeah. And it was called so, gay cancer originally. It was called gay cancer, and it, it right. seemed, you know, initially it seemed sort of far away, and it didn't seem, you know, nobody knew what was what it was about mm. to become. And as it became that, it just it was it was kind of extraordinary. It was it was truly devastating because. It, it was this time in New York where it seemed like anything was possible and artists were everywhere making stuff and suddenly people were getting sick and suddenly this other thing started to happen. And, mm. and often dying within days. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just sort of plucked out, almost like a um, bad analogy, but, but like the Rhapsody, just people disappeared, mm -hmm. you know, very quickly. And uh, I'm sure you've seen the documentary on Fran Lebowitz when she talks about how you could see, you know, you go to the ballet mm. and be able to compare, oh, this year, it here's what is not there because mm. that person who had mm -hmm. a part of this is no longer alive and she said you could you could see mm -hmm. the the art losing all these um bu brilliant imaginative uh, people and it was also at a time where the actual physical landscape of new york city was changing it was a, a time when it was sort of the beginning of the sort of gentrification mm -hmm. and so so you know people were dying and people were slowly starting to be forced out because people could no longer, you know, the East village was, you know, becoming less affordable. And so mm. artists were, were, you know, being forced further downtown and, you know, it just, it went from brightness to, to sadness and mm. darkness. Randy and I lived on, Ninth Street between B and C, and for many years there was this massive, old, fantastic building, the Cristadora building, on the corner there of Avenue B and Ninth Street, and mm -hmm. it overlooked the park. And I can't remember what year it was, but after many years of being empty and abandoned and boarded up, it was renovated and sold off as luxury condominiums, prompting this gentrification riot in Tompkins Square Park and. And so you could really see the whole neighborhood change from it was a crack-infested neighborhood. You know, this was the time of the crack epidemic. It and was it crack. sort of began to turn around into this sort of um, luxury condos and luxury apartments. And that was one of the great telling moments for, like, was meeting, uh, going to Maplethorpe's Loft, uh, 45 Bond Street, that uh, Joel Sheffs had bought. Um God knows how much she paid, but it's like, you know, it's now worth $15 million, mm -hmm. you know, just an insane amount of money. Um, Did you know uh, Patty as well? No. Okay. Um, but no. you knew Robert? No. Oh, okay. We, we, we sort of, see, the thing is that we were there. We were, 
We weren't a different generation, but well, we were we were young. We were younger. He was famous. We were just, we were, we were we, significantly yeah. younger and and not famous. But okay. we would be out and about. So we would be so, at the Michael Todd room when some of his photographs were right. hanging on the so wall. So you were very aware of. Oh yeah. Of him oh and, yeah, yeah. But yeah. he was already he was already famous, right? Yes. I mean, uh, outside the gay community. Um, yes, I think he was. He yes. was a recognized, successful. Artist. I mean, this was pre the the kind of scandal that defined him in many people's eyes. You know, which which wasn't actually ironically until after his death. But he was still a name. It was sort of the same time as like it's so weird that Madonna and Maplethorpe, you know, were very uh, on sort of similar fame trajectories, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they both seemed to come from downtown, and and they were both brilliant at branding themselves. Mm. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Patty Smith, she's the Patty I'm referring to, to listeners, um, uh, lived with Robert for a long time. And uh, her book, she she talks about how relentlessly he yeah. promoted himself and how just single-minded he was. Yeah. And um, uh, that, yeah, I, I loved uh, your, your documentary uh, about him. Uh, what are some other documentaries that people might know you guys from i was talking to randy uh, before we started recording and saying that probably my favorite one that you guys did is 101 rent boys that was where i first became aware of you guys because when the credits rolled um i was just like who who did this (laughs) who showed me this world and it's about um um you describe it um well it's a film where we interviewed 101 um, rent boys or sex workers. Um, and it was, we made it before, it was like pre uh, um, grinder or pre online hooking up. So, you know, it was back in the time when people act actually walked the streets. You had to get in your car and drive to get your dick sucked. Yeah. Back when we were kids. <laughs> back when yeah. Um um and and back then the place to do that was around Santa Monica Boulevard. And that was that whole project came about because it was around the time when Fenton and I um moved to Los Angeles and we were trying to get projects made and we would our office was right around the corner from Santa Monica Boulevard. And whenever we would go to kind of pitch an idea to someone, we would drive along Santa, Santa Monica Boulevard to the, to the Mm. West side. And we would see these guys and we would joke about like, you know, we're doing the exact same thing. You know, they're, Mm. they're doing their thing out on the street and we're going to a meeting to pitch our ideas. And then that's when we sort of cooked the idea of like, wow, we should talk to them and we should, we should make a sort of, up up with prostitutes film like that was the original intention the original Mm -hmm. intention was we have so much in common with these guys nobody ever actually has conversations with them in a non-judgmental way and in a way where people can connect with them and uh their humanity um it didn't totally turn out that way because i guess what we didn't really anticipate was um just you know, there was just so much sadness and so much darkness. That's, and that's it, what I loved about it, though, is you didn't shy away from it. No. You didn't try to put a bow on it. Yeah. And, and, and it just was so 
well, to me, felt authentic. And it it really was. I mean, we like yes. we literally, and we, you know, it it was, and it, you know, it were it, the reality is what guided what 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 we ended up making. I, I guess I just wish some of the stories weren't as, um, you know, as dire or sad. And there were so many great people we met, some of whom we still know. Mm -hmm. um, but And there was also humor in it. There was yes. uh, some lightness in it. Um, uh -huh. But yeah, the, 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 there was a lot of... Yes. A lot of sadness and... and uh, I don't even know what the word is. And, and, and we filmed all the interviews because there were all these hotels along Santa Monica Boulevard. Yeah. So we would film the interviews in hotel rooms in the Santa Mo and mm -hmm. along Santa Monica Boulevard. And, and, um, we actually, the, another sort of surprising and interesting thing about this is we were making another film at the exact same time, which is a film called The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which is mm -hmm. about Tammy Faye. Another great documentary. Uh, Mesner mm -hmm. and, um, so during the day we would be filming with Tammy Faye and then at night we'd be filming with these streetwalkers. I mean, there was a sort of, uh, funnily enough, a sort of, um, because one of our ideas that was the title 101, I think 101 Dalmatians was out yes. at the time. So yes, that's it sort was. of where the title hmm. came from. <laughs> and then we were like, well, you know, the golden rule in documentaries is you don't pay people. And we were like, they should be paid. It's their story. We should pay them for their stories. We don't want to have sex with them, but let's pay mm -hmm. them for their stories. And so many of those stories, and Randy's right, much, there's a tremendous amount of heartache and tragedy in a lot of them. But at the same time, they were so insightful about people. They really mm -hmm. understood people. They had a wisdom beyond many shrinks and psychiatrists yeah. and so-called professionals they just knew about people and what makes people tick and what their needs are and and often it wasn't sex it was uh -huh. often companionship and mm. people just carrying around just people wanting to be heard and seen yeah or held just people feeling so lonely and um so ironically, it was there was something quite spiritual about it. Yes. Which making a film about Tammy Faye was also she was a very spiritual person, but these hustlers were also kind of really spiritual people in the way they mm -hmm. sort of administered, you know. Um, so uh, yeah. and another thing I would like to uh, ask you about is you you did a documentary about Monica Lewinsky and. Uh, I don't know if it was you guys that referred to her as um, kind of the the original um, person being piled on yeah, by like, uh, slightly before the internet, yeah. I guess, right? Yeah. I think Monica's like... She said as much in her TED talk, right? That she was the original. The ground zero for public shaming. Right. Mm -hmm. She sort of, she, yeah, she authored that. She, she has described herself as that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and certainly when we made our film with her, which was for HBO, uh, Monica in Black and White, it was, it was, she still wasn't in a place where she could, 
talk about what happened to her. Like it's really been in the past three years. It was a TED talk she did a few years ago that she really has fully kind of embraced, not embraced what, what's happened to her, but just has understood it and been mm. able to walk with her, with her head held high mm. and to talk about it in, um, in, in a really, open and um smart way when we made our film i mean she could talk about what happened but it was still so raw well and also people wouldn't let her no own the experience or wouldn't let her they were so and people she's still people are still very polarized about it and have their judgments but they wouldn't let her redefine herself or explain herself and she's so she really just wanted to be heard uh, and um, people wouldn't listen. I remember one of the most painful experiences was at the Television Critics Association where HBO presented the film with a moniker. And they also were presenting right after it the uh, In Memoriam, the 9-11 film with Rudolph Giuliani. And it was such a hostile room of critics and journalists. And one person actually asked, and she she wrote a brilliant Vanity Fair piece around the time of her TED Talk, and she begins the Vanity Fair piece by referencing this very moment where one journalist says, why don't you crawl away and die? That was a question from the audience. People just know the sensational headlines about that story. Like, you know, the details get lost. Mm -hmm. And so she hasn't, she's, she's made mistakes and she, she owns those. But, um, but there's a lot more to the story than just the sensational headlines of it. I want to go back to, uh, the loves. So you, love drag queens fenton you've had a good 25 minutes to think about yours (laughs) well i don't know and the Um, more the more detailed the better yeah it's all in the details well no i mean um just trying to pay i love saturday afternoons like well, you could say that's not very specific, but I, there's no question in my mind that some of my happiest times have been on a Saturday afternoon. It's that sort of few hours when nothing is really expected of you, when you can just enjoy the moment. And I just have, I have this very strong memory of uh, coming home from boarding school when I was a kid, and it was a Saturday, and my mother said, oh, let's go to the sweet shop. And we walked along the road to the village. And um, I can't remember if you have them here, but they're like... Um, these hard candies that are like they have a sort of pear type they're like in a they're like pear drops anyway i just mm. remember walking along the, the the river eating these pear drops and i can remember it so clearly and it's not like anything said anyone to anything it wasn't it was just this moment but it was this sort of magical uh moment that i just remember with great fondness mm. and 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 it just seems to sort of cast a sort of hey it has a halo effect on every saturday afternoon yes. Since we have a variety of surveys that uh, listeners fill out, um, you know, ones where they share their deepest secrets, uh, things that turn them on, um, traumas that have happened to them, things they love, um, Mm -hmm. sublime 
moments in their life that have touched them. And of the thousands I've read, I've never read a happy moment where it was somebody getting something materialistic. It was always a, the day my dad took me out of school and we went fishing or Mm -hmm. it's all about these things where they just were present with another person or at peace with themselves and nature. Right. It's not necessarily that anything necessarily happens. It's not necessarily anyone needs to say something to anyone. It's just this sort of, exactly. It's just this moment. Um, Yeah. Anything else that you guys would like to uh, talk about? share promote i don't think that there's a lot of mainstream um media attention or uh, programming that deals with um depression or things that block people from moving forward um i don't you know it's like fenton said earlier like People would rather avoid either talking about it or, you know, making a whole program about it. So we we feel really blessed that HBO was kind of enthusiastic, not only about making every brilliant thing, but are putting it on and putting it on during the holidays, which is kind of genius because, you know, like Mm. it's the perfect time. And then the fact that this is actually kind of uplifting and and. So I really hope people get to see it and they get to share it with other people because, um, you know, not just it, it, it's a great show for people, not only who experience depression, but I think as it's as important to people who don't. Yeah. Agreed. You know? Agreed. Yeah, I, there's a, a saying we have on the podcast, uh, thinking you understand clinical depression because you've experienced situational sadness is like thinking you understand Italy because you've been to the Olive Garden. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's a brilliant thing. Oh, that's, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, great. Yes. There's a lot of people don't understand the, the difference that, uh-huh. between the two. Mm-hmm. And um, I think mm. the, Johnny's thing uh, really should be seen by everybody. Um, Fenton, Randy, uh, so great to meet you and, and talk to you. And I look forward to uh, future things you have, in, have uh, coming out. And um, for the listeners, every brilliant thing, HBO, the day after Christmas. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Is. Thank you. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, like I said, this is just a mini episode, so a regular uh, episode will be up as usual on Friday. And uh, we'll see you then. Thanks for listening.